Welcome to Blanket Fort Radio Theater, a storytelling initiative from SIU Press in collaboration with the SIU Creative Writing Program and WSIU. In our last episode, Charlie Berger met and married 18-year-old Beatrice Bainbridge in Harrisburg in the summer of 1919, much to the dismay of her parents. Beatrice became the reluctant stepmother of Charlie's daughter, Minnie, and the three of them took up residence in Harrisburg. Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary Deniel Chapter 4 Booze and Harrisburg With the nightmare of St. Louis behind her, Beatrice was faced with a day-by-day existence that was in some ways even worse. She was shunned by most of the members of her family and made to feel that she had disgraced the Bainbridge name beyond redemption. Only her father, Bob Bainbridge, kept in touch. A mine examiner at Saline 3 Mine, west of Harrisburg, he stopped by almost every day for a short visit, after the burgers moved to 609 West Poplar. After leaving their apartment uptown, the three lived in the back rooms of what would be called the Near Bar. The house the family would call home had its origins in a two-room shack that Charlie had moved to the lot next to the Near Bar. Once the building on was complete, the burgers had a presentable and livable home. When Mary Bainbridge finally learned of these visits, Beatrice said she was furious. I knew he caught heck when he got home. On the one hand was her family's hostility, and on the other was the attitude of the townspeople. They also shunned her because of Burger's reputation. That left her with Charlie, or more often without him, because he was away from home most of the time. On those rare nights when he was there, he seemed less an open and loving husband than a pleasant stranger. Certainly, he never confided in her, either about his past or his current activities. The extent of his various, usually illegal, enterprises came to the young bride as a series of shocks. Equally shocking, it quickly became clear, was her role in his life. Love had nothing to do with it. He simply wanted a wife to rear Minnie and to provide him with a gloss of respectability. That he would find lovers elsewhere became another of the shocks that awaited her. The nights he did spend at home she best remembered because of his easy laughter, one of the man's outstanding characteristics. More than once he mentioned the monkey cage, presumably a gambling establishment in East St. Louis or St. Louis. But to Beatrice, a monkey cage was where monkeys swung, chattering from bar to bar. A misrepresentation that invariably brought forth that laugh of his. Sometimes he called her a hillbilly, and that hurt. When he became serious, the talk usually centered around money. With Charlie, it was always, Someday, someday I'm going to be somebody. At the time, she thought his chances of ever being anything other than a small-time gambler and bootlegger were minimal, because... He had to be pushed. 
The words were there, and he dressed the part, but the drive was missing, or so she thought. Still, there were schemes that grew like weeds in a trash-strewn alley. Once, he decided to import a Chinese cook in order to treat Harrisburg to some real oriental cooking. However, because Harrisburg was strictly a meat-and-potatoes town, as anyone could have told him had he bothered to ask, the Hong Kong soon folded, and the cook returned to St. Louis, where his talents were appreciated. Berger's presence in West Harrisburg livened up the area in many ways. His neighbors got accustomed to the little Jersey cow he kept for the fresh milk, and to the tame duck that followed him around. They were intrigued by the statue of the angel, water spurted from the mouth, in the fish pond west of the house, and to the goldfish swimming below. Later these goldfish would be moved to a larger pond behind the house, where they grew to reveal their true carp cells. Needless to say, the kids in the neighborhood were delighted by the pony and wagon Charlie kept, especially when he gave them a ride. Sad to say, the statue, that symbol of serenity, was years later moved to the yard, there to be used for target practice. When the stray bullets struck his garage, Delbert Balibus was thankful the walls were of concrete and 13 inches thick at that. Ever the showman, nothing pleased Charlie more than dressing up in his military garb and participating in yet another of Harrisburg's parades. On at least one occasion, he is said to have led a parade while sitting atop a white horse. Before he was a notorious gangster known throughout the Midwest, Berger was a noted character, at least in Harrisburg. And always there was the question of money. The army pension he had been trying to get since 1915 or earlier finally came through in 1922 or 1923, thanks largely to the efforts of his true and lawful attorney, Dr. Lewis N. Parrish of Harrisburg. For the remaining years of his life, Berger would receive the munificent sum of $25 a month for injuries incurred while trying to tame Uncle Sam's bucking broncos, back when he and the century were young. The $25 helped, but only a little. A glimpse of the furniture in their home seemed to confirm the futility of Berger's lust for wealth. We burn wood in a cook stove, said his former wife. Still, he had enough to hire someone to do the housework, leaving Beatrice more time to spend with Minnie. Beatrice remembered. I always had a housekeeper. I didn't have to do anything. They were Hungarians, but I can't remember for the life of me who they were. I also had a colored girl from Carrier Mills. I remember she was almost white and her sister was black. They did the laundry. One time she dressed up in my clothes and went up in Harrisburg and Charlie saw her. He ripped them off of her, you know. Said if he ever caught her down there again, what he'd do to her. When angry, Charlie was another man. While Beatrice had rarely been the target of his anger, she had seen others who were. One such was Minnie's mother, Winnie Mofield. Minnie, who was born in 1917, was taken at an early age by her father, a man considered by many to be a law violator of the worst sort. Their opinion notwithstanding, he meant to provide his child with a proper upbringing, and for her part, Winnie was to keep her distance. She certainly was not welcome in his home, as ex-wife Edna continued to be long after their separation. Not quite as cold-hearted about such matters as her husband, Beatrice sometimes managed to slip Winnie in for visits with her child. Charlie arrived unexpectedly one day to find his former sweetheart sitting with his wife and child at a table at the back of the near bar's restaurant. 
He was livid. Amid curses, he hit Winnie so hard the poor woman was lifted from her chair and sent sprawling on the dirt outside the open door. When Beatrice moved to help her, Charlie told her to stay put. Winnie, at last regaining her feet, did the most sensible thing possible. She ran. Turning to his wife, who had unlocked the gate of the highboard fence and back to let Winnie in, Berger said only, Don't you ever let her come here again. The scene was not lost on the one who watched, too stunned to speak. I didn't like it when he hit Winnie that time, she said more than half a century later. I wondered if he would ever do that to me, but he never did. Even after that, Winnie managed to drop by, especially when Charlie was away in St. Louis. Not content merely to hold her child, she would complain about her former lover. When he wanted anything, he took it, she said bitterly. She even tried to tell Beatrice what she should and shouldn't do. Her unsolicited advice was not heeded, according to the one to whom it was aimed. Charlie did his business at the City National Bank, and I used to take all the money to the bank. When he would tell me I was crazy for not taking my share, I told her I'd never taken a thing in my life and I wasn't about to. That was good thinking on her part. For one thing, Charlie wouldn't have liked it. For another, neither would bank president T.Y. Gregg, who was usually only too happy to help her carry in the heavy bags. Those heavy bags meant Charlie was getting up in the world. A symbol of his rise was the near bar, with its brick bar in front where bootleg whiskey and homebrew were sold. Topped with green felt, the gambling tables in some of the six back rooms were equally impressive, equally attractive. Beatrice remembered them well. I'd see people you'd be surprised to see in Harrisburg. They didn't have any money to gamble, or when they went broke, they'd bring their wives' wedding rings, wristwatches, or necklaces, and he'd put them in a box. He'd say, Now when the guy gets on his right leg, I'll give him back. According to numerous stories, Berger did just that. And according to one fellow who occasionally rolled dice with him, the ironclad rule of the house was that any man who was wiped out in the action always left with a dollar bill in his pocket. Compliments of the proprietor. Gambling was not the only game running at the place. While being propositioned by a good-looking young lady who was quick to quote a price, one wit replied, I just wanted to borrow it. Not buy it. The near bar, as it was sometimes called, was the best-known joint in Harrisburg. Remember that the Hong Kong failed there in 1920. However, it was not Berger's only place in town. According to his former wife and others, more than one of his houses ran in the east part of town. Gambling certainly existed in these places, but prostitution was the main attraction. In the extreme west part of town stood yet another house one that Beatrice remembered well from her one visit. One time, I guess I told you, he had a little Jersey cow he raised, and he had a lamb, and we ran out of feed and I couldn't find John Bard, who was supposed to look after us, him and Jim Kelly. I went out there. It was an old store building down from the Grisoulos place on the left side there, and he met me at the door and he ate me alive. He made me come home saying, Don't you ever come out here again. This is no place. Because he had friends in high places, Beatrice felt Charlie was free to operate with a minimum of interference. She remembered two law officers who came for their weekly payoffs. They would come down there in the afternoon when nobody'd be around. Charlie handed each man the box and said, Help yourself. They never seemed to take too much. I never knew how much was in the box, a cigar box, but it was full of bills. Each would take so much, and then Charlie had such a guttural laugh. He would laugh and close it up. They'd take off. They always came in the side door. They never came in the front. 
That money crossed the alleged chasm that yawned between those who broke the law and those who were being paid to uphold it was nothing new. Rudy Walker, who also operated outside the law in nearby El Dorado, related his own method of buying protection from Sheriff Lige Turner during 1926 to 1929. I ran a crap game here on the West End and I had to pay $100 every Monday to the Sheriff. When asked if that amount seemed excessive, the old man shook his head and said, My crap game was running me from $5,000 to $15,000 a week profit. The protection extended only to the crap game, however. His moonshining operations out in the country, also a very profitable venture, were fair game. One trip to St. Louis netted Walker from $17,000 to $18,000. Among his many local customers was his old friend, Charlie Burger. Walker remembered, When I first sold Burger whiskey, it was at his place over in West Harrisburg. He'd take 10 to 20 barrels or kegs at a time off of me. Sometimes he would come to my house and get it or send a truck or car, or lots of times I'd meet him somewhere and transfer it on the road. At one time, on election day, I took it over in broad daylight, took it in the back door of his house. Nobody would be thinking anything about it, you know. Much of the liquor sold in Harrisburg came from the hills to the south and southeast. One ancient fellow fondly recalled the days he helped run White Mule for Burger in one of the streams near Williams Hill, just over the line in Polk County. In full or in partnership, Burger himself once owned a still. It was located about a quarter of a mile west of the Estes Bridge, north of Rudement. At one time, my informant and another fellow packed two five-gallon bottles of whiskey to the roadside near the bridge for Burger to pick up and take back into Harrisburg, as he did every other night. If the boys needed 500 pounds of sugar or a ton of shorts, Burger would drive out from town, pick up the booze, and be gone. Rarely did he actually visit the still site. One night, no pickup was made because by the time he arrived, the bottles were gone. Furious, Burger stormed up the creek to find out why the whiskey wasn't there. Each of the still hands so convincingly swore he had helped the other pack it down to the designated spot that Burger finally had no choice but to believe them. Come with me, he said to one. Afraid to go, but more afraid not to, the lad dutifully followed. And when they reached the spot where the bottles had been left, Berger knelt and found a set of tracks. They followed those for 50 yards or so into some brush, and in a ditch they found the five-gallon bottles. That guy won't come back tonight, Berger said. As they waited at the same spot the next night, the two heard a buggy arrive. The guilty party was loading the containers when Berger stood up, pistol in hand, and said, Don't run! Quickly setting the bottles down, the thief owned up to the stealing and waited to hear the consequences. This time he would get off light. I want you to take that right back where you got it, said Berger. In an undertone, he added, Don't ever let me catch you down here again. The young man who watched the drama from the underbrush later teamed in town, often hauling whiskey from the Big Four depot to Burger's home. He reported that never in all their dealings was Charlie anything less than a gentleman. The gentleman beneath the swagger was also apparent to Wilbur Leitch. I started a little place in Muddy, the old streetcar depot. It was built in with a seven or eight foot board fence around it, and there used to be a show there, a movie. I ran that winter in uh, 1915. Burger came up. I'd known him before. He wanted me to take orders for whiskey and drinks. Give the customers what they ordered there then and 
the order that they would give me would be sent to Cairo, and it would come up the next morning by rail, and he would bring it over from Harrisburg to replace it. That was evading the law. I came awful near doing that. And if it hadn't been for my uncle, Zach Leach, who was a deputy United States Marshal at that time, I would have. While the deal was still a possibility, Berger gave the young man his own 32 Smith & Wesson IV, Wilbur Felt, his own protection. Two neat notches marked the back of the little gun's handle, and a hefty sliver was missing from the bottom of the handle. Berger did not discuss the notches, but he said that the missing fragments came one night when he ran out of bullets and had to convert the weapon into a billy club. Too smart to inquire further, Wilbur felt that if he had accepted the job, he too would have put that pistol to use. The two remained friends, but at a distance. After he was married, Wilbur bought a farm south of Raleigh. The premises were soon visited by chicken thieves, one of whom caught a load of Wilbur's buckshot in the backside. The evidence that turned up after the occurrence indicated that Berger had at least condoned the thievery. Berger himself made his appearance on the place after that, accompanied by some of his men. They had been blasting doves out of a nearby tree that happened to stand in the middle of the dirt road. Perched prominently on the front of his Buick coupe, Berger ordered the driver to pull over so he could chat for a moment with an old pal. The chicken snatching episode was fresh on his mind, but Wilbur was the soul of courtesy. To tell the truth, though, I kept my eye on him all the time, he said. An enterprising moonshiner from Eagle Creek once tried to sell Berger some of his produce at the place at the West End. He talked nice, and even tried to sell me a distill, the old man recalled. But that deal, too, fell through. Before leaving, the man from the hills noticed two things about the joint. The bottles on the shelves bore recognizable labels, and the women seemed more than merely friendly. Next time. As told to our paper several days ago, he is in a hospital in St. Louis suffering with blood poisoning. Thank you all for listening to Blanket Fort Radio Theater. Please follow us on Facebook and visit BlanketFortRadioTheater.com to learn more about the project. Build your own blanket fort and tell a story.